Well, as most of you know, we are doing a message series on what uh, the church historically has called the seven deadly sins. And we're trying to frame our understanding of it uh, in relation to the long pilgrimage or journey that we have in following the Lord in this life. And it seems like uh, any time you go on a very long trek, uh, there is uh, baggage that you carry along with you. And invariably, if it is, a, it is a great distance, you find that there's some baggage that you let go of along the way, and there are some other things that you pick up along the way. And it really is no different in our walk with the Lord. Uh, there are things that are in our lives that uh, the Lord says, that's not really fit uh, for the destination that I'm taking you towards. And there are other things that the Lord says that I, I want to add into your life so that you can be fit for the place that I'm calling you to be, uh, my good and perfect and new creation, uh, where there is no more sin and there is no more evil, there are no more tears, there's no more death. It's something that, I, I don't know about you, but I, I long for a day when I could turn on the news and they would have some bright, sunny, happy story about something, and to me that would be just, just fine. But until then, uh, God has put us in this world, uh, and he's placed us on a journey. He's given us a responsibility to share uh, the good news that Jesus is Lord, uh, that the old is passing away, and that the new is coming. And in that tension in between the, the new that is yet to be revealed and the old that is part of what you and I experience in this life uh, is our journey. And uh, I don't know about you, but as I've uh, followed along with the Lord, I found that he has been busy uh, taking things out of my life and uh, replacing them with even better things. And if you look at uh, the message today, uh, the title is The Empty Road of Lust Versus the Joy of Seeing God. And I would say that the Holy Trinity of our culture is probably uh, money, sex, and power. And you can take pretty much uh, anything that you see presented to you as uh, something that's valued. And you could find that behind them are one of those three. And... Um, because we live in a culture that is so saturated uh, with the concept of sexuality, uh, it's something that creates a lot of confusion for uh, our humanity, uh, our impulses, our biological drives, our vision for what it means to express ourselves in that way, and how we can somehow along the way not get caught up in it so that we don't make our destination. And that was a concern that the Lord had for even the people during his time. It, believe it or not, wasn't the biggest concern that he carried. Uh, he was really confronting a lot. Pride of the Pharisees. Uh, greed of people that were trying to exploit others. And uh, as he was looking at those two elements and, and a few more, uh, occasionally uh, he would... Uh, go down uh, this road and begin to address that. Ironically, of the people that he said that would enter the kingdom, he, he indicated that prostitutes would actually get there before the Pharisees. And yet, he also knows that there's something about our sexuality that can destroy 
uh, our, our very souls, and that was a, a concern that he carried and, and taught about. Uh, but uh, that being said, um, as we look at our message today, let's just consider it against the backdrop of what we, we've been uh, considering uh, the past few weeks in this series. Uh, so on the next slide, uh, you'll see a sign, and uh, on it, we have some areas that um, are detrimental and, and in a lot of ways uh, will throw us off the path. Uh, pride, lust, greed, envy, sloth, wrath or anger, and gluttony. And we've covered quite a few of them. Uh, there's one more yet to cover. And if you haven't been able to follow along in the series, uh, on our webpage we have both message uh, notes and we uh, also include uh, a, a video that uh, has the message itself. Uh, so if you think that that would be beneficial, uh, please take a look. But uh, in, the, in the course of the last six weeks as I've gone through this study, uh, I've really learned a lot about how these things are uh, deadly in their own right. And yet how in my own life, to varying degrees, uh, there's something that uh, I've struggled with and I think uh, all of us have. Now in looking at them, um, we find that in and of their own right, uh, they're pretty much descriptors of what we see in the culture around us. They're behaviors that we see in a variety of forms that people will tell you that they're just fine. Uh, don't, don't get upset about old moral codes or ancient ideas about religious concepts, uh, these things actually are really more harmless than we've been led to believe. And so uh, today I want to try to dispel some of that, those myths again by looking at some of the harm that can be accomplished and how that can affect you and I. Now, um, if you take your message notes out, uh, take a look at the front graphic. And in considering what is the topic of the day, I'd like to contrast that with some of the teachings that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount again. If, uh, if you've ever read Matthew 5 through 7, uh, it was what scholars say, a sermon that Jesus preached in a variety of settings, and they underscored the things that he felt like were most important in, in, in describing uh, the, the message behind his mission. And so we see a variety of things that, that, are, that are described, uh, the Beatitudes, which is a way of um, just indicating a blessed life in a variety of ways. If you're struggling with lust, and, uh, and that may be a problem, given the nature of the messages of our culture, um, and you've seen its downside, and you're thinking maybe it's time for a change, then I believe that this uh, particular beatitude is perhaps the most um, uh, beneficial in leading you out of it. It says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And it's really something that doesn't describe in any sense the word lust, but it describes some qualities that have to do with being able to clear our vision and see something that maybe we haven't seen Ever or in a long time. And, and, and that is God. Now we all know that we see God through eyes of faith. Which is different than the physical 
impact of light on your retina, but the clues that are indications of God's presence become something that we do see if we tune our eyes to it. Uh, you know, if, um, if, you're use, if you're a carpenter and you're driving through town, chances are you're going to look at every house in terms of the quality of the construction and the design of the architecture. And that's really going to be the lens. If you're, um, if you're a landscape architect like my son, everywhere we go in the car, he's not thinking about the architecture of the house. He's thinking about how they've arranged all their plants. And the list just goes on and on. It just depends on how your filter is tuned as to what you see or don't see. Because we only have so much attention that we can, we can lend towards seeing different things. We can't see it all. And, you know, even today, you know, some of us walk in and, 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 our, and our filter is, you know, how, how other people are dressed. Maybe our filter is, you know, how the hairstyles are. And, and so just to underscore the point, I believe that there is a filter that we can have for seeing God that we have to kind of tune into like any other filter that we have. We have to begin to think along those lines in order that we can see along those lines. And as a pastor, of course, vocationally, I have I've been trained to see along those lines, to see joy, uh, to see bitterness, to see pain, to see grief, uh, to see anger, and all of those that impact our walk with the Lord. Well, in seeing God, there are actually some things that obscure our vision. And, and lust is uh, for men uh, premised on a very visual uh, source of input, uh, perhaps for females. I'm not one, so I can't really speak very clearly. But maybe romance novels are an example uh, but these are just pathways for being led away from your vision of God and into something that is very powerful, that follows the lines of desire. Now, um, when Jesus said this, uh, he, he, ha- he also talked about desires. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and how we can tune those desires Uh, But for today, I just want to look at this uh, in terms of the problem. And the problem is, uh, ironically, and you're probably thinking, well, where does this come from? We were designed for joy. Um, I I don't know about you, but I enjoy joy. I I like that feeling. I like that sense of well-being that happens when joy is in the air. When I was at a a wedding yesterday, I experienced a lot of joy in the room. And uh, it's just, it's almost like you go to a whole other level in where you're flying uh, in in, in life's altitudes. And we're designed for that. But because we are, are, are always longing for it, when we can't find it, we settle for godless pleasures. Now, I'm not saying that um, the pleasures in, in and of themselves are wrong, but when they're not centered in the things of God, they can become, uh, they, they, they can become something very destructive. 
And, uh, and, and lust is really one of those areas that is full of promise when it comes to pleasure, but not necessarily capable of delivering it. Uh, and, and this problem that we have uh, is centered, I think, in a longing for something that lust offers but is unable to, uh, in, the, in the end of the day, uh, provide. And so we're presented with a problem. And like any problem, um, it, it really is centered in, in um, things that God has identified as bad for us. And in scriptures, we find that as kind of a funny story. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai, Anti uh, Wright shared this, uh, you know, he, he went up there and, and, he, and he received uh, the word from the Lord regarding how to come back and teach the Israelites while they were uh, in their formative stage in the wilderness. And uh, he came down and he said, well, the good news is uh, we don't, we've reduced the 40 commandments down to 10. Uh, the bad news is adultery is still on the list. And, and, and for, uh, uh, for, for any of us, we know that somehow uh, that longing that lust creates and the pathway that sometimes results in adultery is, um, is, is destructive on so many fronts. And so God says it's, it needs to be included. So let's look at this for a minute. Lust is a controlling desire that promises pleasure yet can only deliver what, what I, I would consider two lasting effects. Um, and I would underscore controlling desire because uh, it is something that once it takes hold, it just doesn't let go. And it, it, it takes your mind hostage so that your better judgment and the things that you know are a possible very bad side effect from allowing it in your life, uh, are no longer a concern. It is almost like a drug in that regard. And because it has that controlling effect in taking away your own self-control, taking away the lordship of Christ over your life, and drawing you into something that, on a very, in a very simple and perhaps not too complicated or hard pathway leads you into something that um, promises gratification, fulfillment, uh, things that initially provoke pleasure. But the thing is, the more you pursue it, the more it, it becomes unavailable. And it can lead you down a path of unreality, consuming my time, attention, and devotion. And the, the bottom line for it is this. It, 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 it is a desire that, that clearly you have within uh, even the boundaries of marriage that, that keep it constrained. But once it goes beyond the boundaries of marriage and focuses on the object of someone else or something else, then it just begins to take on a, a mental framework that has nothing to do with reality. It's a path of unreality. And it can be something that, uh, as you're drawn into it, it could be you're attracted to a person, and this desire takes hold, 
and you're thinking, if it feels so good, how can it be so wrong? Yet, as you, in your own mind, begin to construct the possibilities and the pleasures, it just takes you farther and farther away. And I'm probably preaching to the choir in that regard. I think most of us are aware of how it... um, how it has no bearing on our real life. Some of us have been burned by it because it's enabled us to go down a pathway that has, uh, has created a lot of damage. And yet, when you're caught up in this unreality and it begins to work on you and it begins to consume you and uh, demand your attention and even your time, uh, you find yourself... Uh, being carried along by a power that maybe you, you're feeling it's more than I bargained for. So actually, Jesus spoke a little bit about its impact in, uh, in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And he said these words, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in her, heart, in, in her or in his heart. With her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into Gehenna. And I substituted hell for Gehenna intentionally. Because Gehenna was what Jesus said at the time, and uh, it was a reminder culturally of, uh, uh, of something pretty horrific in the history of God's people. Uh, Gehenna was a valley on the edge of, um, uh, of the city, and uh, it was historic. It was, it was known as the Valley of Ben-Hinnom, but after Israel uh, went into an idolatrous state, and began to substitute worship of God with uh, pagan observances. And that created a whole new way of uh, ritualizing uh, uh, their, their religion. And as it did, it included um, uh, not only worshiping pagan deities, uh, but sleeping with temple prostitutes. And then after that, um, child sacrifice. And the reason why people did it, uh, ironically enough, was, well, it was a path of least resistance. And there are probably some weak-minded men who would tell their wives, we need to go and sleep with temple prostitutes so that the pagan gods can provide rain for the land. And in the desert, uh, there was always this fear of drought and not being able to provide crops. And so it was, a, it was a pagan cult that had a lot of appeal. However, uh, as that was carried on, uh, it also offered the promise of providing rain in ways I, I really don't understand. But it meant that you could get a transactional response from a God that was different from a prayer to a God who would say, I, I will provide rain if you pray to me uh, as a measure of grace, but I'll do it in my timetable. And God promised that he would provide for these people and bless them if they would keep their hearts turned towards him. 
And uh, as they did, he did. But as he turned away, he began to distance himself uh, from their lives because they were replacing him literally with other things. And really destroying uh, the connection that the people had with God. Now what does this have to do with what Jesus just said? Well, Jesus said, um, as you're looking at uh, doing things that aren't based in reality at all, doing things that are destructive, doing things that will destroy your soul, things that will destroy your marriage, your relationship to other people, doing things that will invariably uh, destroy your reputation, all you're doing is taking the reality of the blessing of God and exchanging it for the unreality of a fantasy that the more you follow into it, the more it wreaks havoc on your life, the more you rationalize that it's okay, and then eventually uh, it just destroys you. And Jesus knew that pattern well enough to say, uh, this is something that if you get caught in the undertow of controlling desire, it will begin to destroy you, and you'll begin to find ways to say, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And you're not in your right mind. It's not reality. And, um, and basically, um, what is in the valley of Hinnom, what became by the, by the mindset of the Greek, uh, Gehenna, is the place of refuge. It's the garbage dump. But it also is... Uh, a, a cliff that junk is thrown off into that included the bodies of Israelites who were displaced by nations that came in when they were caught up in all of this adultery and, and, and took away their land. And God allowed it because they turned away from God. In the process, every time people walk by Gehenna, and they saw the garbage dump under, they threw their garbage in there. They were reminded of how pursuing something other than God winds you up here. Gehenna is not a place that you aspire to go to. It is a place that you wind up at whenever you get off track and you start following the wrong things. And so when he said, uh, you'll be cast into Gehenna, they knew exactly what he was talking about. The place where there is nothing of any value anymore. The unreality of it. Now some people, uh, as, as time uh, unfolded, uh, you know, we, we translate that as hell. Which he Gehenna is a metaphor for hell. Because the substance of Gehenna is pretty much the description of the place that we, we wind up at when we shut God out. And it's a horrible fate. One that I, I can't imagine. It wasn't one that is by God's design. But rather, did you know that hell really is the result of our own choice? It's the, it's the place that we created. It's in a lot of ways, it is, um, it, it is that, that place that we weren't intended to be uh, destined to be a part of. But yet, because we chose to rebel against God and, and, and his ways, hell is just the absence of everything that has to do with God. And I could do a, a series of messages on this topic, but for our purposes, uh, let's just keep this thought in mind. The unreality of Gehenna and the worthlessness of it is really the only thing that 
lust can offer. It cascades into a wave of destructive events. And as I mentioned earlier, it begins to involve my life, my relationships, my social capital, everything that's good about my life here on earth, it takes it away. It leads you or me away into. And it's really to be avoided, according to the Lord. It's one of those things that um, uh, initially it offered so much. Culturally, it just seems to be the acceptable thing to do. But if you ever push the pause button on your life, and you step back, and you say, what kind of fruit is coming out of this mindset that I'm having, or this behavior that I'm having along these lines? What good as I step back and I measure its effect can I see coming from it? And I would say at the end of the day, it's pretty much the equivalent of what you see in the garbage pit of Gehenna. Offering a lot, but delivering only bad things. So here's the bottom line. With it, lust separates us from God by taking us away from him, controlling us, and the food that he offers to nourish us, that is um, the, um, the, the sustenance of his presence through his word, through his spirit, the sustenance of his presence through being in a community of like-minded people, and for us, most importantly, the sustenance of his presence that's represented in the table behind me. We come and we take the loaf and we drink the cup and we realize this is the bread of life. And this really is what is important for my, my soul. And what we do is we take the, the, the very healthy nourishment of all of those godly things and we begin to allow other things to replace its place in our lives. Could at first begin with just stop coming to church, stop eating the meal together, stop reading the word, becoming cynical about praying, indifferent about the things of God, rationalizing lustful desires, trying to find a way to incorporate that into your life. And in the whole process, you're just being led away by a controlling desire through a food that is actually starving you. Uh, it's a phantom food that offers no substance. And our culture will never tell you that because the culture does not have the same resource in God that we've come to know and enjoy and benefit from. The culture only has the culture and the imaginations of the people in the culture that gravitate towards money, sex, and power. But when you come into a place like this, it's a reminder that there is a reality beyond those that are presented in the culture that is a reality that is premised in faith. And once you begin to walk into it, you start to experience its power and the presence of God and the things of God in ways that the culture can no way begin to provide. So let's move on to the vision it's the problem. I'm not going to say the solution. I'm just going to say the vision. Because it really is about exchanging one vision for another. And the vision here is seeing God. 
That's the true vision. Blessed are the pure in heart. That is, the pure in heart will see God. And you may be thinking, well, I can never be totally pure in my heart. And we probably can't. Uh, this side of the new creation. But one thing I know that we can do is we can begin to take those things that are in our backpack that, 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 that are finding their place in our lives that keep us distanced from God and discarding them, taking them out, putting them on the roadside and saying, that place that was occupied in my backpack by that, I now want to see God fill. And I want to see him. So let's look at the true vision. We see God and he will begin to create real experiences in your life, including real joy. Now, I know that all of us struggle. We all have suffering. We all experience pain and we wonder, God, where are you sometimes? But the ironic thing is, I've seen God show up when people were going through real pain. I've seen God get very close to people who said, God, I have no recourse except to turn to you. And I've seen in the midst of that pain, a joy begin to emerge because that person has said, without this pain, I never would have drawn close to God. But now that I see him, I see its role and I'm finding joy. But it's not just in pain, it's in it's in just being around people who have that spirit of joy in them. And it's in trying to each day connect with God through his word, through prayer, through reading psalms. Uh, however you, um, you best find uh, him coming close in your life. For some, it could be being in nature. Uh, it could be through reading. Uh, it could be through being in uh, a community of other people. Uh, God just shows up and joy happens. Now, secondly, this includes real beauty. You see, lust would have you tune out that which is not going to gratify your flesh. It's only interested in directing you to things that will provoke uh, the, the, the pleasure hormones in your head. And that's it. And it says that's where you got to go. But God says, step back. Don't be pursuing that. But rather, open your eyes to what's around you. Begin to see me in in the beauty of the earth. In the uh, display of his magnitude in the sky. And begin to see him in, in, in just everything around you. And if you're like me, I do like to hike. And my son, of all people, has taken someone who was indifferent to plants to begin to tune into to, uh, what they are and what they offer in all of their array and variety. And I find myself, like him, walking around in the yard or in the woods and seeing things that I never saw before because my mind wasn't really tuned. My filter wasn't really developed to see real beauty. But the more I look for it, the more I find it, the more I realize just how rich it is and how fleeting other things that the culture is saying, look at this, look at this, are empty of meaning. 
And it's God's way of saying, I'm not going to offer it all to you at once, but I want you to walk into it. And the more you walk into it, the more you see it. And the more you see it, the more you see the other stuff in all of their emptiness. And finally, as we see God, we'll begin uh, to see lasting life. And one thing about um, lust, for example, as well as the others, uh, it takes the life out of you because it turns you into a person consuming and, and taking all of your energy and investing it in something that is empty. And rather than adding to you, it takes away not only from your soul, but from those close relationships from your community, from those places that bring life. I mean, how many of us have been in a, in a group of people where we feel very joyful uh, as a group? And maybe before we went there, we were kind of down. And when we walked out of there, we're like, it's like we're walking 10 feet tall. It's, uh, it's something about being in a, in a community in a harmonious way that brings life. And yet, lust would say, I just want to take you away from all of that. And God says, no, that's wrong. I want to take you away from the seven deadly sins, and I want to bring life in your life like you never, never have experienced. And that's part of the good news. When we declare Jesus is Lord, it's a declaration that those false gods that would take hold of us like a vice offer real, really nothing lasting or fulfilling or satisfying. And when the gospel is proclaimed and we are released from the grip of that vice and we're brought into the freedom of Christ, we discover that in him there are all these riches. But the only way we can see them is to keep our eyes on the Lord, to see him. And here's the last point. How do I see God? Because I know a lot of you are asking yourself the question, how do I see God? And it's a very important question. And I would say that he begins to show up when you make space for him. You've made space in the seven days of your week. In that, in that time, you've made space uh, for him the first part of those seven days by worshiping him. And he's going to honor that. And be a presence in your life as a result of that. And as he shows up, um, you begin to see, yeah, I, I, I'm starting to see now. But we also begin each day maybe reading some scripture or listening to uh, the Bible on, uh, on our iPhones or something like that. And that space that would have been taken up by other things in our mind is now space that's carved out for the Lord. When you stop and you pray in the course of the day and you invite God into your life, into that moment, you're making space for him. And I can assure you that when you do, he shows up. And the more you look for him, the more you find him. And as God takes that word pure and he throws it into the mix, it's not like saying, okay, now you've got to be perfect before God shows up. No, that's what grace uh, enables. 
No, what God is saying, you got to take some stuff out in order to put some other stuff back in. And purity is all about removing stuff so other stuff can fill that space. And um, if you've ever uh, uh, had a spring cleaning in your house, you know that you, you, you look at, you know, your closets. Or maybe your wife looks at your closet. And she says, that really needs to go. And you're like, but that, that shirt, I love that shirt. But she's like... That is so 80s. I'd be embarrassed to see you in public. And so, you know, sentimental value aside, you let it go. Only to have that space filled by something else. Usually a shirt that she's bought it at uh, someplace naturally on sale. And as um, that, that space is filled by something better... It's no different. God is saying, you're taking time, you're taking energy, you're taking your, perhaps, uh, your, even your conversation, and you're mixing prayer and worship and God's word in there. He shows up when we make space. If there's a place in your life that is a barrier between, that you know is a barrier between yourself and God, free it up. And, he'll, he'll, and in, then invite him in. Secondly, um, he shows up when we reprioritize our desires. There's no question if you're a male and you have a female presentation on a TV commercial that is very provocative, being biologically wired, you respond to that. But then you've got to ask yourself, is that a desire that I want to feed And the bottom line is, um, if you're concerned about life and joy and beauty and the good things of God, then that's a desire that doesn't fit high on the priority list. And so you reprioritize them around desires that are good. Our desire should be for our wives. You know, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And then at the end of Ecclesiastes, he wrote, really, the best thing would have been just stick with the wife I married and be happy. But there's something about focusing your desires where God intended them to be focused. And um, that's an intentional choice. Uh, there was a guy who had a sheepdog, and, and, and um, one of them uh, was larger than the other ones. And uh, the guy... Uh, was approached one time and he said, uh, why is um, one sheepdog larger than the other? And he said, well, it just depends on which one I feed the most as to who's going to be bigger. And that really is the way anything in life is. The more you feed it, the more it grows. The more you starve it, the less it becomes uh, uh, a living presence. And desires are the same thing. Now, finally, we get to um, the most important part, I think, for us. How, does, how do we see God? He shows up when we desire to see him in others. Now, what does that mean? Now, we heard last week some pretty, really um, upsetting stuff on the news about black people and white people and a variety of different cultural things in the mix always. And it's always pitting one group against another. 
and providing a label that identifies a person. It could be culturally, it could be nationally, it could even be genderally. Uh, you know, you're identified along those lines. But what God said was, you're identified along the lines of being made in my image and likeness. And when I see somebody, I try not to categorize them, no matter where they're at on the identity spectrum. What I see, first and foremost, is a person made in God's image and God's likeness. It is not, and in the cultural aspects, though important to those individuals, that's not the primary source of our identity. It's who we are as we're made in his image. And that is what he's come to redeem. Each of us, in our own place in life, in our own unique identities, based on where we were at in life. And what God wants to do is to take us, basically, not necessarily completely out of that, but more into something better and deeper. And that is a new humanity in Christ. Where everything that is broken about us can be remade. Where everything that is flawed about our culture can be, can, can, can be replaced with something better. Where everything that is, um, that, that is defining us in a lesser sense can be replaced with something that defines us in a richer sense. And I was with a person the other day, and I never met him before, other than prior to that day, and um, found out we were, we were believers, and he just came up to me and he said, isn't it great that we're both God's children, that we're brothers in the Lord, and we'll live forever? And I thought about it, and I thought, you know, that is awesome. I don't know you hardly at all, but I can't wait to get to know you in a way that um, I, I really can. And it may not happen in this life, but I've got forever to get to know you and so many other people uh, because of what God's promised us in making us his children. And that really is his concern. You know, I sent my son out west to go and explore 27 national parks. Got a video from him in Seattle. He has a beard now. His hair is long. He looks pretty feral. And I just hope that... Um, you know, he, uh, he lands on his feet when he gets out of there. Uh, but even though I don't even recognize him anymore, he's still my son, and we're part of the same family. Uh, but my desire is that along the way, nothing bad happens to him. Now, I can't micromanage that. He's on his own. But he's not so on his own because God's with him. And God will walk with him and help him and protect him. And so I'm just confident in God's care. And it's the same for each of us. God loves us. He's going to walk with us. And he is constantly present with us on the journey. In the graphic, we don't see God per se, but we see his imprint all over if our eyes of faith are tuned into him. And I wonder this morning, as you and I have gone through this uh, empty road of lust together. And hopefully got back on the path of the joy of seeing God. I wonder if the filter that God has given you 
that maybe wasn't so tuned in is starting to tune in. And you're starting to see him and realize that you've not made a place for him. And I wonder if that awareness has created a new desire to invite him in and to begin to see him more and more and to know his joy and to begin to see his beauty and to know life because his son has made it all possible on a bloodstained cross that is a way of removing the curse of everything that is evil and broken and redirecting our attention to everything that is good and blessed and wholesome and pure. And that's really what you and I were made for, regardless of whatever lies you've been told up to this point.